0: For those of you consuming this episode strictly in audio form, cool, always love having you along, taking us wherever you go, but that means you can't see the the lovely faces around our Zoom meeting today as well. So let me introduce individually our guests for this really important conversation on the podcast. We've got Shannon Moore with us, who is an Assistant Professor of Social Studies Education in the Department of Curriculum, Teaching and Learning in the Faculty of Education at the University of Manitoba. Shannon, great to have you with us. Thank you very much for being a part of this conversation.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Teresa Fowler is with us as well. I learned just before we started recording, a Stratford native, so we had a little chat about the Cullitans and the uh, the (laughs) Junior B hockey loop. Uh, Teresa is an Assistant Professor of Education with Concordia University of Edmonton. Teresa, great to have you with us. Thank you as well.
2: Thank you, Mike. Thanks for
0: having us. And Tim Skuse is here too. He's an assistant professor of curriculum and pedagogy at Brandon University and an avid hockey player to this day. So Tim, great to have you off the ice and into the conversation. Thank you. Great. Thanks to be here. Shannon, let me start with you on this one, if I can, as we begin this conversation, because it ties back into the emails that you and I were exchanging leading up to this really important conversation. And, And each of us comes to this from a a pretty passionate place, and that's passion for the game itself. We're, we're parents, we're fans, we're players, we care about the game. So, this is not meant to be an exercise in bashing the game and, and tearing it apart. And, and frankly, let me editorialize just for a brief moment if you're listening and you think that's what, the, what this is about, maybe just ask yourself if you might be part of fostering that culture that we need to change in the game. But let's start right there with you, Shannon, and what. What makes you think that this conversation is as important as we believe it is?
1: Yeah, I think it's just like you said, and as we were speaking about before um, we started recording is that each of us has a love for the game. And we started to do this research because of our love for the game. And so let me tell you a little bit about our research first. Um, The three of us together interviewed 21 elite level hockey players, male hockey players, who were resistant to some element of hockey culture. And so they were people that had done well within the game, had made it through the ranks, but there was some element of hockey culture, whether that be the use of alcohol and drugs, sexism and homophobia, fighting, stoicism and the need to play through pain. Um, the army mentality, the hazing, all of that sort of stuff, that they had some resistance to that because it, do, it did not reconcile with their understandings of themselves or how they had to be on the ice and how they felt about themselves when they came off. And so I would say our participants as well, who we are extremely grateful that they took the time to speak to us, also have a love for the game. And something we noticed when we were looking at our transcripts was there was an absence of that love in the way they spoke about the game itself. And what I mean by that is Tim and I both play, I grew up playing ringette and then transitioned to hockey. And we together speak about the sound of skates on the ice, passing the puck, being out on the river playing in in Winnipeg is one of the most wonderful things. My team and my camaraderie with with my ringette, Um, players and the later hockey players that I played with was such a positive influence for me and yet there was something about the broader culture of hockey that has a rot at its core that's not about the game that's not about the individual players that's about the undercurrent that has an effect on the people that play the game and a very damaging effect. If you look at things like the need to play through pain, we had one of our participants who took two ibuprofen and two Tylenol before each game at the age of 20, then that turns into Teradol use, et cetera. This is damaging for the players that love the game as well. And so we need to start to interrogate and look at that. Can we love the game at the same time and still see problems with it? because we want this game to continue in a way that is good for the people that play it and good for the people in those, those individuals' lives as well.
0: So Teresa, to pick up on that, the research that was done and what you learned from the participants in your research about them not being able to necessarily see all of themselves in the type of person that was created perhaps by the game. Is that, is that what we're seeing currently in hockey culture that it, it almost pigeonholes you into a type of masculinity, if I can put it that way.
2: Absolutely, we absolutely see that. Um, We actually had one of our participants say that at the end of their career, when they started realizing how toxic it was, that they needed help to rediscover who they were before hockey that they worked with a therapist, they worked with their partner to kind of get back to that person that they were before. And that's what, you know, when we talk about this issue and this rot in in hockey is we recognize too that this isn't just about hockey, right? We recognize that there are yes, broader problems with respect to masculinity in society. However, the ways in which hockey grooms young people and players into the sport into the identity Um, my dissertation research was with the u18 hockey team and they were very much privileged in that space they had their own uniforms they arrived late to school they were allowed to run in the hallways and yet kids with mental health concerns were shunned from having to take those walks so hockey grooms people into this identity and then they're faced with these, you know, taps on the shoulder that people say don't exist. There, you know, you mentioned, um, I was from Stratford, you know, when we were talking before, we knew when certain teams were coming, there would be more aggressive plays on the ice. And that really drew everyone in. So it's also important that it's not just the grooming of these players within hockey culture, but those of us on the outside You know, why am I going to watch the Rangers play and not watching another team? Well, it's because I want to see the fights, you know, so what's my role in this? There's a lot of folks that need to be implicated outside of um, hockey culture as well, because if we really want to shift the culture and shift how things are changing, we need to look at how these young men are groomed into this specific identity where they're not allowed to talk, right? They're not allowed to share. They're not allowed to be different. And yet, on the other side, us fans are rewarding them for this, right? You know, so what's my role in this as well?
0: Boy, oh boy. Teresa, when you talk about that privilege, the the late to class, the running in the halls, the older I get, the more I find myself asking the question. Because I see it through a different lens now, obviously, as a parent myself. But Boy, when I was 16 and 17, if I was afforded the opportunities that these young men are, because I see it all the time, right down to walking into a restaurant, like the Kitchener Rangers are a big deal in this town. There's a restaurant that they can go to and it's, oh, you're a ranger player. Meals on us today, boys. I couldn't imagine how I would deal with that, that level of idolatry. Like I just, and so I, I ask myself all the time, for, and then again, as an adult, How am I perpetuating that? What am I doing to further that entire story? So, Tim, let me swing it over your way, because it it gets me to thinking about the importance of this conversation. And yet, historically, because this game's been around a long time, our reluctance to talk about it. And I think that's because we hold hockey way up here. And on our Zoom screen right now, my hand is so high extended, you can't see it. But hockey has almost taken on a mythical foundation in this country.
3: Yeah, I, I certainly think when you think of um, Canada's national game, I think a lot of people would associate that with, with hockey. And, and one of the things um, that you know, I think is pointing at too is that within the institution of hockey, there are multiple practices that foster and cultivate a particular way of being a boy and a man. And I think some of the things that we found too is that it becomes to the point that it becomes part of the fabric of who you are and my identity. And it's not something that we're always conscious of. You know, that's what we do. That's how we play hockey. So these take it for grantedness, the ways that we play the game. And I think we've had many conversations that we talk about, you know, the way the game is currently played, it's a possibility, but not a necessity, right? We've constructed ways of understanding what it is to be a boy and a man. And I think one of the things, uh, Mike, that is very challenging is how do you take up these difficult conversations without invoking some kind of resistance? Can we keep it open long enough, the critique of the game, to say that it's true of something that we're seeing about masculinity and hockey culture that ought to be scrutinized and interrogated? And can we let that breathe enough to say, well, what do we do now that we have opened up the space that points to these kinds of things that we're seeing in the media with pseudo-regularity. So Shannon, to that end, should we be
0: surprised in any way that it's taken this long for Hockey Canada to at least give the appearance of taking this as seriously as it is as an organization. And and I say that because as of today, from the time we started emailing to arrange this to today, there's been a further overture by Hockey Canada to indicate that they are taking this very seriously, but still what we're talking about has been a longstanding problem at the core of this game.
1: Yeah, and I I guess I'm gonna say multiple things here. We are glad that we are being asked to talk about this in the first place. So there is a step in the right direction. Because what we have witnessed so far, even last week, Tim was on a radio show, and right away, people were like, they didn't realize he was a hockey player. And right away, they're like, I bet that guy's never raised his voice in his life. And I have played hockey with Tim. He is an exquisite hockey player, not to embarrass you, Tim. And he also played elite level football. So I mean, both hyper masculine sports, but people will look for ways to undermine our messaging. And this goes back to what Teresa was saying, either because I'm a woman um, because Tim used to play elite level or because Teresa is a parent. And so I, I think there's progress in the fact that we are at least being asked, yet we are still seeing ways people look to undermine what we are seeing. So going back to what Tim said, people are asking us as pe- researchers and as education um People, all three of us work in education. What do we do? They want the magic bullet. What do we do about this? And as Tim alluded to, this is a long standing conversation that needs to be had. We need to dwell in this moment and really look at what is the construction of gender? What are the elements of hockey culture that produce silencing, that produce misogyny? And all of those elements need to actually be looked at for a long time. And everybody, as Teresa and Tim both alluded to, need to look at their complicity in the production of that from announcer to fan, you know, to players, to parents, all of those things need to be looked at. And so I see it as progress that we are being asked. I still see it um, is troubling the ways in which people seek to undermine us. And in the Hockey Canada case, to go back to your original question, certainly there is hope in that, however, We, none, none of us in our writing about this wants anyone to think this is just a hockey Canada issue. And so this is a hockey culture issue. So all of our advice is not to now point fingers at hockey Canada and say, let's, individualize Hockey Canada Canada and cut that out and then Hockey Canada is good. Or let's take those young men and boys that were tweeting misogynist or sorry, texting misogynist things about girls and then let's say that they are bad and cut them out and then hockey is fine. There is a problem in hockey in the sense that people always want to point the finger away from the culture and say, look, look what they're doing. And if we could just isolate them, we'll be fine. And I think what's happened with Hockey Canada is they have been called out to the point that they've realized the cover up that they've participated in until now is no longer palatable to the rest of society. And so they do have to go back and interrogate the ways that they have done things. But what we would rather ask is, why did they cover up in the first place? Why was the impulse for the boys involved, or I would say the men involved in this, to cover up in the incident itself? How did they know to do that? And then how is what Hockey Canada is doing is exactly the same thing on an institutional level?
0: So I know your question, Shannon, is rhetorical because we know exactly how they knew to cover up. What happens in the locker room stays in the locker room. What happens on the bus stays on the bus. I've heard that one a million times in my time. So, Teresa... Acknowledging the problem at that level is really where we begin on the path to changing the culture.
2: Absolutely. But again, it's really problematic for the players. And we don't want to necessarily, um, for lack of a better word, to say they're off the hook because they've been groomed into this silence. But again, it presents sort of a paradox, right? Is they're groomed into this identity that what happens in the room stays in the room. We're a team, one of the quotes from our participants actually shared that to be on a good team is to keep things in the locker room, even when pictures are shared about another girl, That that's not, and they said, that's not meant to offend, it's meant to stay inside as a team building activity. So So they're groomed into this silence, into this locker room place, but again, back to your question about Hockey Canada, and we've been here before, right? This is an institutional response. If we just look back to last fall, we were having this same conversation about a then John Doe, who was saying they were sexually assaulted by a coach on the team. That person then came forward. Kyle Beach bravely came forward and spoke publicly. And I remember that moment in my office. I was like, excited but also mad because i'm like damn it! i have to find another research area because how can people ignore how can people ignore this man who's coming forward saying he let's talk you know masculinity men getting sexually assaulted has another layer so he came forward and but nothing happened right we saw the response from gary bettman and you know we And it's still, there's nothing. And now here we are again with this woman bravely saying she will cooperate with the investigation, but to what end, right? Like to what end, what is gonna happen? Is it gonna just be covered up again? Is it just gonna be brushed under the rug again? Are these men gonna be called out in some way? And then what happens? Well, what happens if they're star players on a current NHL team, right? You know, like I think we've been here before and it's time to have a new direction, a new change.
0: You know, that also makes me think of about a year, just over a year ago when the Montreal Canadiens made a first round selection of a player that I've watched in this Ontario Hockey League in Logan Mayu, that had been found guilty with his European hockey club, for sharing a picture, just like you described, Teresa, and and then making him a first-round selection, again, gets back to the rot at the core of this in the culture. You know, Tim, the cynic in me wants to say it's finally the money that's doing the talking here, but I think we have to acknowledge the role of corporate Canada and other corporate sponsors who have flat-out removed sponsorship dollars from Hockey Canada events that, listen, if, if I want to be super cynical, I'll say it was just that. On the other hand, I can look at this. I think we can all look at this and say, if, if the corporate environment is beginning to speak up, that is another step in this process of ultimately changing the culture because now the corporate environment is not complicit in it. You're still on mute, Tim. You think by now I'd be used to this. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. It wouldn't. It wouldn't yeah. be a recording without that.
3: <laughs> um, one of the, I, I think. Um, I don't want to speak for uh, Shannon Teresa, but I think both of us hold, or all of us hold, this cautious optimism. That when fractures or breakdowns occur, in the sport of hockey, it opens up a possibility for conversation that it could be otherwise, and so. One of the things that I found really interesting in uh, some of the conversations that I had with with men in the game and boys in the game is that they often couldn't find the language, or they haven't heard counter narratives or counter stories. So one poignant comment that I had uh, from a ex uh, college player and former Calgary Flame at the end of the interview, he kind of looked at me and said, "You know." I've never really thought about how hockey has shaped me as a man, as a husband, as a father. So in that moment, and we talked about the title for our, there's a reckoning. Now that you're conscious of this, you've been made aware of something. Now, what are you called to do? So I think, although we can be cynical about the corporate squeeze and and why, and the, the impetus for that, I think what we're all hopeful for is How might this contribute to or be a catalyst for some kind of change? And how might it provoke this conversation that kind of gets some legs under it, that it keeps going, that it's not this blip or this spike in response to? So I think one of the things that I'm hoping that this precipitates is this idea of counter stories. There's other ways to think about masculinity. There's multiple ways to be a boy and a man and to become so that's really i think this transformation possibility i wonder i wonder
0: shannon if if you cuz i i agree with where tim's coming from here not to speak for the entire panel but again based on our emails leading up to this there is There is a desire here amongst all four of us to see this culture change occur and to see the game continue to flourish because it's a beautiful game. We all we all want to see that happen. Right. But I I wonder for you, Shannon, where you're at in in that optimism, if we're starting to take those steps, because, again, this is. This is a, a podcast we do for junior hockey fans, one one small part of the overall hockey machine. And already on, on this podcast, we've had Brock McGillis, who is an outspoken advocate and just a terrific guy uh, in support of the LGBTQ plus community. We've had a fellow on this podcast just recently by the name of Jason Clark, who was a former Ontario Hockey League player whose ex, almost exclusive role on the ice was to be the policeman, right? He was out, he knew every night that he had to fight the other team's tough guy. And he spoke so passionately, and and even left it open at the end of our conversation with an open invitation to anyone struggling, either still in the game or afterwards, because he's battled the drug addictions, he's trying to, to find his role as a husband after all he's gone through. But I, ask, I find myself asking again in my darker moments, How many conversations like that we need to hear, right? How many Bob Probert stories do there need to be before we get it through our helmets on our heads here?
1: Yeah, and I think to go back to your question and then bring in the earlier discussions of, um, I guess, commodification and the the corporate response, um, do I have optimism? Again, I'd say that these conversations are happening is is my optimism. Um, But I think going backwards, we need to ask what's contributing to the silence around these from other people within hockey culture. And I think commodification has something to do with that, in that our participants spoke about constant feelings of precarity within the sport. By that, I mean, they called themselves suitcases. They talked about being billeted. They said, once my body is no longer useful to the sport, I am not useful to this sport. And so that constant underdog narrative and feeling that as elite as these players were, that were our participants, that they still felt as though they could be tossed at any moment, we need to ask how does that and how does the hierarchy within hockey culture contribute to the silence of other people who are in the game right now not coming forward to talk about, like Tim says, how we might be otherwise, how this is not working for them, how they cannot reconcile reconcile their feelings. And while it is that corporate sponsors are withdrawing I don't think that should ever be the reason in which we're changing culture is because of money I think it should come from the inside rather than hey you're losing money let's change the culture and I think some of the branding that's being done right now around hockey is for everybody I think that doesn't work for us great message but it's a facade that is um Business oriented in and of itself. And I think what it does is mask over some of those deeper conversations that we need to be having. And just to end to going back to your original question around optimism, like as educators, people are starting to ask us, like, where should these conversations around gender and masculinity start? And how can it go back to, uh, you know, a, a hockey player's first time on the ice? How can part of team training be discussions of healthy, ways of being a young man and boy, discussions of consent culture. And while people are asking us as educators for the silver bullet, that's great they're asking, but we think that this needs to be something that as much as you train for hockey, as much as you learn about nutrition, you should also learn about healthy understandings of being a human and expressions of gender. And there's more than one way one can be a young man or boy or woman or trans person, or gender fluid person, and still play and love the game of hockey.
0: You know, Teresa, that makes me think, I I should probably back up several steps here because the research that the three of you did preceded this latest scandal that's plaguing Hockey Canada right now. What was it that led you to this initial research? What motivated you to dive into this?
2: So, I think like I'll start with speaking for myself. For me, it was growing up, like you mentioned, in Stratford in a hockey community. My brother played hockey, my husband played hockey. Um, being an educator, you know, we worked with players in high school to navigate, you know, their careers as they're attending school. And so you really get to see this um, privilege, right? Like you know, mentioned before. And yet at the same time, I, it always struck me, especially with, you know, our family is why they were also struggling with mental health issues, you know, what, what caused some of these issues to arise for these people who seemingly, you know, they don't have to open doors are open for them, right, you know, so, so for me, it was more interested into what is the root cause of this. And, you know, for our research, we then, you know, we're thinking about These hyper forms of masculinity that players are expected to perform right to be the policeman, like you said, or the enforcer, the goon, whatever you call it, or um, having to stay silent when there's a woman having testicles put on her head, you know, what is it that's causing these people to stay silent and is there room. Right, because at the same time, while this silence is happening, we're hearing players like Kim Aliyu speak out about racism, Corey Hirsch talk about his experiences with mental health, and so we're seeing these fractures that Tim spoke about. But there's nothing really sustaining the openness, and so we were interested to see if there are current players that are resisting this form, this narrative, and when we were doing our work, we we had to sort of shift our understanding of what resistance is. How do you resist a system that you've been idolizing since some of our participants were two or three years old? It's sustaining their lifestyle, it's sustaining their income. For some players, it's providing, you know, opportunities for their children. So how, how do you work in that space? And that is sort of the part where what we see happening with this issue or this case with Hockey Canada is the overbearingness of silence. How can, you know, you know some players have come out from that team and said I didn't know anything and i really you know i want to believe that but i just don't understand how people could not know what happened given there were so many people involved in this incident the cover-up so obviously the coaches must have known right so i think it's how does this form of power manage to stay in control when all of these things are happening saying this isn't working And one of the things that often is not talked about in hockey culture is whiteness, right, the white supremacy, the white privilege that really permeates through all of these things, and we know when whiteness is threatened, it hangs on tight, right, you know when you have a wet bar of soap and you squeeze it and you squeeze it because you want it, but it's gonna pop up so we saw that you know outside of hockey culture with the um, January 6th insurrection of the White House we saw it with the convoy here in our country so we really also need to be implicating whiteness and the role of white and power the culture of power that causes people to not speak up despite the fact that they've been raised otherwise they you know these folks are good people Right. They've been raised in good families. They've been told if you see something, speak out. And yet they don't. So I think it's we really need to have that sustained fracture open up and be uncomfortable with these conversations. And even if this is tied to junior hockey, most of the um, we saw a lot of the issues arose in our research in major junior. Right. You know, the response for Hockey Canada was they're gonna have their high level players do, you know, consent training. Well, you know, that's later. What about major junior? What about junior? What about all of these kids that are chasing this dream? That's where we need to begin our um, interventions.
0: I wonder if there isn't a challenge here, and I don't mean to oversimplify anything because as Shannon already pointed out, everybody's looking for the silver bullet. It doesn't exist. This is going to take a time and and b this is going to be a multi-pronged approach but just in in listening to you there teresa and I'll throw it over to you tim but i wonder if if part of the solution here isn't empowering or in other ways encouraging those who have been silent to find their voice because we we've talked about you know if we just eliminate this core or this these Bad apples, then everything's going to be fine without actually addressing the culture, but part of the problem in the culture is this silence that is somehow complicit if we if we can I, th- I think in listening to this one part of the the answer here, the road ahead is is helping those who have for whatever reason decided silence is acceptable to recognize it's not to be uncomfortable and to make to make those who have historically been silent more vocal as part of our solution here is that am I getting anywhere close to part of this Tim
3: I think so one of the things as you're asking the question and listening to Teresa speak one of the things that I find um, through my experience in hockey and certainly the the interviews that we conducted is what stories are told that are revered who are the men in the room that are revered um, I think there's not a man on the ice or a boy on the ice is not uh, aware of those guys um, who's who could be dangerous there's a hierarchy among males and dressing ones that we know shifts get shorter when so-and-so's on the ice etc so I guess to your point too is these stories that are so esteemed um, how might we tell other stories and whose voices are have been silenced either naturally or unnaturally and sometimes it's implicit We don't have to be told what stories and how to be a man. They're just, well, that's what we do. These are the well-entrenched practices of of masculinity, I would suggest. And one of the things, I guess, you know, to the point is there's this one gentleman, I remember him saying, you know, what I'm being asked to do on the ice and off the ice is just not part of my constitution. And I I can't think of um, the implication for one's identity to say, what is the notion of being human if, if you can't stand somewhere where you firmly believe you ought to want, you want to behave in particular ways? So this, and one of the things, and I think it's I'm reiterating this, but one of the things that men would so often say, and this particular gentleman did, said they internalize their own sense of lack or inadequacy, that it's my problem. I can't live up to the ideals that my coach wants me to do. And this one particular person player said, um, I was reamed and embarrassed by my coach. And this is a pro hockey player in a, in a dressing room intermission saying, get out there and do something. So this one player looked around, and there's a melee; that breaks out in front of the bench and he just sucker punched this guy and put him in the hospital. This idea and feeling compelled to be that norm is overwhelming sometimes for men. And he, I remember him saying, I called this guy in the hospital. I broke his jaw, I knocked him out. And he, he, 30 years later, he's telling that story in an interview, contrite about it. But feeling in that moment, this is the demand that's being placed upon young boys and men. And I think all of us can live in situations and understand situa- where we've acted contrary to what we believe in. Either through the dominant culture, uh, the pressure to do so through authority. I mean, these things, I think, it's not just in a hockey culture. So um, how then do we allow the boys and men, some agency to say, no, I'm not engaging. It's not okay.
0: So this comes back to, and I think if we, we start to have this or shift this conversation into the, what needs to happen here, this is not Shannon redefining masculinity per se. I don't think it's broadening the definition of masculinity. Is that where we're going to start here, perhaps?
1: Absolutely. And I think I, I I know I'm not the interviewer here, but I'd like to go back to Tim in that to ask the question of what brought him to the research, because I think that speaks to two of the things that have been brought up already is the way one feels about the way one is expected to act within the game. And then the type of masculinity that is enforced upon a person that makes them not recognizable to themselves. So I think that's part of what you're asking me, but I feel like I want to throw this one to Tim because I feel he has such a great answer for what brought him to this research.
0: I'm happy to defer to great questions anytime, by the way.
3: (laughs) Yeah. um Uh, Yeah, it is. I found, I think at this stage, uh, it's interesting that the tug and the pull for me is to research hockey. So after years of playing the game and continue to play, and now my son's playing to say, what the hell happened? How How did it turn out that way? How could I sit in rooms to this day and hear comments and still say, what am I to do? How do I interact with this, these um, comments of homophobia or misogyny? It, it's not just, here's what you do. They, they rear their ugly heads in contexts of, we need to respond. And that's why I don't think it's just this magic bullet that's gonna say, well, you, ju- you just do this when someone says that, right? I think there's a, there's a way that we have to engage in this discourse and learn to speak and bump up against it. So I guess, you know, to, to Shannon's point is, I couldn't, I didn't know who I was in the context of hockey. Or I oscillated between trying to perform in particular kinds of ways to be accepted and oscillating back to going, I don't, I don't recognize myself. Swinging back to, no, no, but this is what I need to do. So these contradictions were abound in my trying to find a, an identity within the game of hockey and beyond.
1: And even like you've interviewed Brock McGillis and in one of the podcasts he was on, he speaks about how he became a womanizer, how how he was a misogynist. And part of it was that part of his um, depression and his his drinking that he spoke about in the podcast was that he couldn't recognize himself. He did not recognize who he he was expected to become as a result of hockey. And so while some of the critics will go, they're just trying to feminize the game. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to make space. So that everybody doesn't have to perform the exact brand of masculinity because that's not who they are and that has nothing to do with the game and i think that you know it's difficult to interrogate for a few reasons tim has mentioned the fact it's hard even as a i won't say how old tim is now but as someone who is mature in his in his locker room now to turn to his peers and go hey, why are you saying that? And I've heard that from my peers that play hockey still at this age is they'll hear somebody say something sexist, racist or homophobic. And they say, is this the moment for me to say something? Can I live with myself if I don't say something? You know, who does it matter? What other people in the room is it important that they hear me standing up for this? And even if that person isn't in the room, why is it still important to say something? Yet recognizing how difficult that is within that space, you're lacing up your skates and you you have to get into a big sociological discussion with somebody because that's what you feel morally compelled to do. And yet it's 10 o'clock at night and on Thursday night and you want to play a game and have a beer afterwards, right? So there's those two things going on at once. Um, and I think why it's so difficult to interrogate, in addition to all the reasons that we've spoke about, about hockey culture and hierarchy and all those things that maintain silencing is a lot of our participants spoke about, they were never explicitly told to do certain things. So then how do you fight against something when a coach isn't saying go slam into that guy or, you know, go commit this act of violence, nobody's explicitly telling them they just get subsumed into the culture and learn that that's the way to be and so then that's difficult and one of our participants said, I learned right away I shouldn't ask questions, I asked my coach a bunch of questions, and he said, don't ask so many questions you know and so. Not only is there nothing explicitly being instructed, but when people do ask questions just about the way things are they learn right away that that's not what they're supposed to do. So it's very difficult to fight against something that's so invisible. I mean, if there was rules in hockey that said do X, Y, and Z, then we'd say, we'll go change those rules in hockey. But when culture doesn't have tangible things one can hold on to and name and call out, that makes it much more difficult to change the culture.
0: You know, Teresa, I'm thinking back on something I said earlier about through the lens I have now, when you reach a a certain age and stage of life, thinking about when I was 16 and 17, if I was afforded all of these opportunities and all of a sudden, you know, I had all of this at my fingertips, how would I respond? How would I react? Do I have the maturity, emotional maturity, et cetera? People, you know, who reach the age of, of Tim and I can view things one way and, and, and handle things situations in one way I, I think again not to be too cynical here but we're we're asking an awful lot of major junior hockey players to to push back against this culture well
2: first I want to say thanks for not including me in that age group even though I really am but <laughs> but you know I think you know to your point I you know in in education we often you know talk about children right that children know more about ethics children know more about justice than adults do and somewhere along the way you know they unlearn those things so i think we really need to give more credit to these men these boys who are in this institution of hockey that they are seeing i mean the world is changing around us. We have now more women involved in professional hockey at coaching levels, you know, managerial levels, scouts, more women in football, like there's more diversity happening. You know, it's on TV, Cheerios, everything. So they are not so isolated from broader society to be able to understand that it is not okay to effeminate a player in the dressing room. That it's not okay if your girlfriend sends you a private picture to share it with your teammates. They do know these things. So we need to give them credit, but then also give them the ability to speak. So there's no repercussions that you're not going to be benched if you, you know, report to someone to the coach or whatever. As a coach you need to listen you need to put the game aside for a minute let's talk about the fact that these pictures are going through the dressing room because that on a scale of being a good human weighs more than winning a game and i think again it comes back to like we've been talking about the commodification the neoliberalism the capitalism that all you know win at all costs And it's just taking a step back and recognize where is the role role of the human in hockey why did these kids get involved in hockey in the first place you know it's the skates it's like what shannon was talking about at the beginning it's the aesthetics and the joy and that is gone right that's been replaced with silence that's been replaced with bro culture that's been replaced with locker room culture vegas rules and so i think what we do is just need to really build up these players to say, hey, we are listening. Society is listening. You know, people will support you if you speak out with these things. And, you know, I wish I could swear on your podcast, but I would say, you know, fuck hockey culture, you know, just speak out. It's not cool what happened to this woman and any woman. I mean, there's so many things wrong, but I think what folks in that culture need to know that they will be supported by those of us who are on the outside to say enough is enough and it's time that you recognize your own humanity and that this is not cool and not okay
0: thank you for so perfectly articulating really what this entire conversation is about, Teresa, because again, to allude to the emails that Shannon and I exchanged in arranging this, when this story began to emerge, we we had the conversation in this house and and my wife and I together, it's just, it's revolting. It's revolting to think of what happened to this poor woman at the hands of so many. I can't, I, I can't stop thinking about the number of people who had the opportunity to intervene to for somebody just to say guys what what is happening here how like anyway i you you articulated it perfectly so tim are we are we encouraged now by hockey canada's reopening with a third party of this investigation can this be a catalyst for the change that is required
3: I I mean, absolutely. I I think um, we're all members of faculties of education. And I think at the heart of education is to see things otherwise. And hopefully when we see things otherwise, we might might live in the world differently. So I I think as educators, that's absolutely my hope going into classrooms, that um, children and men and boys and girls and women have an opportunity to engage with others to see things differently and you know one of the things that I guess I'm always um, not surprised by but really I need to pay attention is I have a young son now who's playing hockey and one of the things that I think and maybe this picks up on, on what Teresa was alluding to as well is that the young bring questions to the game that I've since forgotten or long since forgotten so my son will say well do I have to do I have to be that way to be accepted in a locker room? And he's there's this innocence in this. He's finding his way around. And my response as an adult is to care for that child, to say, no, there's, there's other ways to be. And sometimes what he's doing, too, in his questions is he's overturning the obviousness of something. What we're so familiar with, my son makes unfamiliar to me. So I have to go back as if for the first time to these questions of masculinity, these questions of hockey, my ethical responsibility as a parent, as a player, as a fan. So I'm, I'm really encouraged that the young keep coming and they keep presenting us questions of how we are adults going to care for these young people within the game of hockey. So I guess to your point and to your question, yeah, absolutely I'm hopeful that there's transformations, new understandings lead to different ways of being in the world.
0: Not that you have um, stopped being a high-level athlete, Tim, but how do you view your previous high-performance self?
3: Uh, can, you, can you be more specific, Mike, with that?
0: <laughs> well, so when, when, you were, when you were competing at, at the height of your athletic career, were there times? Uh, or maybe, no, of course there were. So how do you, when you look back on them, how did you handle them? How awkward was it for you, perhaps?
3: Oh, um, I, 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 the first things that come to my mind um, is playing uh, junior hockey. And I was absolutely stunned and taken aback by the behavior. And it was around hazing rituals. And I remember thinking to myself, this is so disturbing. And uh, I, my, I was a single parent at home, my mother, I couldn't go home and tell her what was going on and I said that's problematic in and of itself so it started in junior and then I went to university and I thought so I I just it's it's reprehensible some of the behavior and I don't want to denigrate again we get into these oscillating between hockey's all bad or hockey's all good but some of the hockey and the practices that we engaged in uh, we're all complicit in that There's no place of innocence with this to varying degrees. Um, So I I still have great friendships that I garnered through the sport. I still play the sport as much as I can, as much as my body will allow me to play, I'll still play. But it it oscillates between that, what happened? How might I unlearn that? How do you reckon with that? What is my role now? from some of the things that we're finding. And I think part of it is to engage in the conversations that you're hosting to say, here here are our experiences. Here's the experiences that we're hearing from boys and men about hockey culture. And I think they live in that phenomena. They feel things and sense things and believe things. But as you've suggested on multiple occasions, it's a narrow set of tracks that you've got to fit into. And young boys can name those tracks in a heartbeat. So Shannon,
0: how do we engage in meaningful change when we're going to continue to hear the pushback that I can almost hear in listening to Tim saying, well, you know, a little bit of hazing is part of joining the team. Tim acknowledges he's fostered good lifelong friendships from his time in the game. So that's good way to go team sports, way to go hockey. We're going to face that even outside of the game from fans and and supporters of the game. So how do we start the process of meaningful change as we also have to work through that part of it?
1: Yeah, I think we always need to listen to who is speaking or should I say who is speaking for? Because a lot of people that say, what's wrong with a little bit of that? or maybe the perpetrators but people in our study spoke about having to slide across the ice naked and the damage that it did to their underside from having to do that and the way that the impact that the shame they still felt in their 20s knowing that their fellow friends and players made them do that that they found ways to ridicule them to get them to dress up like women sing i'm a little teapot we need to be willing to ask these questions and and you alluded to earlier the the idea of the case in question that is resulting in a lot of these conversations coming to light. But Tim and I were talking about this this morning, and can we think of another area in society where eight men would go into a room and do what they did, get her to, as Katie Strang's reporting said, uh, video herself saying, I'm not drunk. So obviously they know something about consent that they got her to video herself saying, Um, I'm not drunk to tell her to shower and that nobody said something afterwards. And if we can't ask the uncomfortable question of why did eight people who play a sport do that? And nobody in that moment said something. If we cannot ask those uncomfortable questions and instead what we hear people doing is what about ism? Well, what about other sports? What about masculinity and culture? No, that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about hockey culture and look at this and dwell in it like Tim referenced earlier, and actually take the time to, to talk about these things. And it, it does do damage to young men and boys that do not fit the mold. And myself as a female player, I did not get to play. I'm, I'm, I'm old as well. And I did not get to play boys hockey with my brothers because I played ringette because that's what girls did back then. And I transitioned when I was 19 and I played co-ed and three different things happened. I had a dressing room all by myself, which is lonely and you don't get to be part of the team. Secondly, I was in the dressing room and there was always people that were like, I want to expose myself right away because there's a girl in the dressing room or they actually accepted me as part of the team and three different things happened when I, when I was part of co-ed, but why, why didn't I get to just be a player? Why couldn't I have just blossomed as an athlete in that context and make my gender, my supposed gender have nothing to do with this? And I know there was a story and Teresa, you may be able to chime in on this, the East coast, there was a girl who was 12 and the parents all were like, she can't be in the dressing room anymore. She's 12. And it's like, why, why is her body immediately a weapon? Why you're making such assumptions about the sexuality of all the boys in the room, first of all. And secondly, she's just a person that wants to play hockey. Why did all those parents come together to say she can't be in the room because she's going to be a distraction? Why? Why? She's just a player like I I think I know that's a flurry of thoughts there, but I just think like we need to actually be able to look at all of this stuff and say, what damage is it doing to the people who are not the people they're speaking for and saying everything that is fine.
0: Teresa, did you want to add further on the East Coast story?
2: Honestly, I'm drawing a blank with the East Coast story. (laughs) So so my answer is no.
0: No, it's, it's fine because it, that one rings a bell for me too. And I think it's such an important point to bring forward how sometimes the adults in the room are the ones continuing to perpetuate uh, this culture that we're talking about now. And and so what I will swing back to you on, Teresa, is there is no doubt in my mind that we need to see tangible actions of leadership from Hockey Canada, from Gary Bettman in the National Hockey League but to get to the core of this because we understand this is a deep-rooted issue we also have to start introducing these new ideas of masculinity from the moment I think our kids are starting to lace up skates. Fair?
2: Absolutely and I think um, you know when you mentioned the response from Hockey Canada and Gary Bettman, Gary Bettman, I kind of had a twinge, you know, but um, I think what is important moving forward is that Hockey Canada and the NHL are not the ones who get to decide the fate, because they have built their organizations to be so insular, to be so closed, that there is no room for another form of what it means to be a men's ice hockey player. There isn't a space for that. And you know, like in 2020, um, my previous supervisor and myself and another, we met with the NHL after um, Gary Bettman announced his four point plan to get rid of violence in hockey, which we know has worked really well. Um, And at that meeting, you know, there was a lot of things that were not said a lot of things that would not be addressed and at the end of the day, we prepared a research report for them suggestions on how to move forward and the response was thanks very much we're going to keep this internal. And so I think as this case moves forward. The response needs to not be the NHL investigating hockey Canada, because that's you know that's just going to keep reproducing the same culture again. Let's ask Kyle Beach how that's working out for him. What needs to happen is people, outsiders, despite all the criticism, despite the fact that, you know, I can't skate unless my husband's holding on to me. We need to have those outside folks who are seeing what is happening and not only just rely on research, but really curate these stories of these players who have been speaking out right, who have been talking and not turn to what has always happened before. Let's maybe just add a third, what is they're going to add a third party to investigate? Well, who is the third party? You know, are they connected to um, either of these organizations? And why? Another question we ought to be asking is why did the London police not press charges? Was there again, you know, Why? Just leave it at that. Why didn't they press charges? What's the role of law enforcement in these um, incidents? You know, do they just get brushed off because, don't worry, Gary Bettman and Hockey Canada got it? You know, so we need to really ask who's investigating, who is offering different ways forward? And we need to be intentional. Right. Like when we're talking about hazing and, you know, just I think it was yesterday, was it not, Shannon? Um, uh, Ference was went on a tweet. I don't know if you saw it, Mike. Um, I'm blocked now. He blocked me, but um, he he outlined how he was then the captain for the Oilers asked to go and speak to the prospects. And he's, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. We're going to do a team building exercise, which really was a hazing incident where he brought in his army friends and they kidnapped these players in the middle of the night to do army things. And again, the complicitness that people are like, yeah, good on ya, because you know we need to know who cracks under adversity and that's how you do it. And so again, it's not just these institutions of hockey it's me as a fan it's me as a parent it's listening to my kids when they come home and say hey you know tim's son is in a different dressing room why is that mom like you know and be open to these conversations and i think until we get to that point we're just going to be stuck in the same cycle and that's why we're cautiously optimistic
0: tim how much of this Resistance to change, do you think is rooted in fear? Because if we change the game too much, if it's not a rock 'em, sock 'em, tape it up and get back out there kind of game, who's going to like it? Who's going to watch? Who's going to pay our bills?
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's a distraction as well. I think when you look at the game in the NHL and you look at it historically, if we started to itemize, and identify all the rule changes, all the way the game has progressed, um, it it shows otherwise, right? So if we're taking up um, the conversations when they were going to put, um, people are gonna wear visors and the hue and cry about, oh my my goodness, right? Uh, Where the NHL is constantly trying to say hits from behind or blindside hits. So there's constantly trying to think of ways to engage the process, of the, the process of thinking about the game. But one of the things that I, I, I think too that I, I think it's important to, to mention is talking about changing things. Mental health, I can't help but think of things that question provoked for me in this one interview that I had with an NHL player and he said, um, When I would fly between cities, so let's say they played in Calgary one night and he was on his way to flying to LA, one of the first things this man did, quote, who is going to cave in my face tomorrow night? So he would look at the lineup, take a sleeping pill, and have a beer. You lived like that for 10 years in the NHL. And I'm thinking, what is going on there? And the second idea um, is this notion of, Fighting. And this one fourth-line guy played for, uh, in the NHL said, my role was to instigate, to try to get into the kitchen, if you will, of other players. And so the opposing team's, quote-unquote, tough guy said, if you go near this player again, I, I, it, it's over for you. This man then says, I lived in fear that I couldn't do my job for a year. They returned to Boston Garden and said, i have no other choice but to drop the gloves with this guy to earn his respect so and then these i know these are familiar tropes but i guess what i'm what i'm trying to point to when we're talking about changing culture how do we linger in those stories and what are they true of and i think that's really where i want to sit and say what are these stories true of that men are living in fear of man to man violence men are living in coping mechanisms that you're going, you're doing what? And then I, then I you know, I'll, I'll end with one more thing that I, I, I found disturbing uh, with Sportsnet. So Sportsnet has a whole story on, or maybe, sorry, maybe it wasn't Sportsnet, Tampa Bay Lightning come out with their injury list at the end of the playoffs. And somehow the narrative of the story gets told as one of heroism or the esteemed warrior. And I'm not suggesting in the contact game, the way it's set up, there's going to be injuries. And I'm not suggesting that you can't play with certain kinds of injuries. But what I am saying is, what when we frame the story that way, what other narratives does it foreclose on? And Shannon's talked about neoliberalism. So why do we have four rounds of a playoff at a best of seven? Right? So why are men then limping up to the table, going back to the dressing room to get whatever need? but to continue to play the game. And one player to me, former NHLer said, I asked him, what would you do differently in your NHL career? I wouldn't have played injured as often as I did. So the contradictions again are just, it's staggering that we don't linger and say, what is going on in these stories that were being told? And I think going back, it circles back to your original question of the resistance to change. It's tough to sit with those.
1: If I could just jump in there too, I think a lot of those people that are saying they want to keep the game the same are those that do well within a particular system and have power and they do perform that brand of masculinity It's working out just fine for them. So I think we need to be cautious about who we're listening to and often those resistance voices are people that do not want to give up power And the people that are resistant, why aren't we listening to the voice of Ryan Kessler, who can no longer play with his children because of the effects of Teradol or Corey Hirsch, like Teresa mentioned, or Akeem Alou because of racism, like the game's not going very well for them. And we need to listen to their voices. And diversity is always a good thing that makes everything better, right? So we're not taking anything away from anybody. We're trying to expand the possibilities for people to be a myriad of performances of of gender to to invite people that do not just like all of our participants save two were white people. And why is it that 19 of the 21 elite level players that were part of our study are white? It's because hockey is still very white. Well, why is that? We need to start interrogating that and asking that. And, And I think our next study would be, let's look at the people that dropped out of hockey when they were 14 and 15 years old. And why do they no, no longer have access to a game that they probably love, right? Why are we taking that away from some people who would probably thrive within the sport if it became something a little bit different? And that doesn't mean changing the game, I mean changing the culture.
0: Boy, and do I ever love that point about the next part of your study? Because it kind of reads my mind. And just before I get to that, because I've taken far too much of your valuable time on this beautiful July day, to talk about hockey. But again, it speaks to how passionate we are all about this. I just want to say, though, Tim, you encouraged me more than I can say when you talked about visors because I'm old enough to have grown up in the area where helmets weren't even a thing. And the best part and why your word about visors encouraged me is because the number of former players that I've talked to in my recent years who have said... It's just unthinkable to conceive of the game having ever been played without a helmet. So now I hope, I don't know how many years I've got left in the game. I mean, it's easier to broadcast than it is to play. But that said, I, I hope, it like, it is my sincere hope now, and I believe based on that comment about visors, that the time will come where somebody, once associated with the game, will say to me or my, my successor, it's impossible for me to conceive of the the previous culture that you're talking about. I think we can, if we could get there with visors and helmets, we can get there with the culture too. So as, as we wind this up, because I have taken way too much of your time on a beautiful summer's day, but, and I'll just kind of go around the horn and, and Shannon, I'll get you to start. Let's just freeform. What's next? Where we're having this important conversation. Parts of it have made me uncomfortable to be perfectly honest about it. And I hope those listening have been, made a little bit uncomfortable too and are starting to think so with the three of you what's next where do we hope it goes from here just leave it open under that way what's next shannon
1: well i i appreciate what you're saying about being uncomfortable and i think we're all part of these systems and i've been complicit in in you know, doing horrible things as well in the way that I performed uh, while playing hockey or in my, you know, expressions on the ice, etc. Like we are all all complicit in this. We're not saying any of this from an arrogant standpoint of we're perfect and everybody else is doing it wrong and just do it like us. Instead, we're saying, what is it about the culture that's making people perform in this way? Um, So where is this going from here? I, I hope we get more institutional access. We have not had a lot of uh, success in getting access to particular institutions to talk to players, and we wonder what is it that they don't want us hearing that they're saying, and you know if what is normal to a player when they say it out loud, which is what happened in our study. People are like, "Well, we just did a little bit of this," and then when they said it, we were like, "You did what? Um, <laughs> that's not normal." You know, you know, sliding across the ice naked and hurting your testicles is is not normal. Um, And, and, you know, dressing up as I'm a little teapot, like those things we've referenced and, and, you know, producing misogynistic understandings is is not normal. And when they said it out loud, you could hear them catching themselves in it. And so where I hope this goes is I hope we do get more institutional access to talk to players. I hope that there is less defensiveness about the belief that we are attacking the game or, or trying to feminize the sport, um, And I think that our research going forward will look at those people that have dropped out of the sport who or who have not been successful because it's important to hear their stories. Teresa.
2: Yeah, thanks. No, I think, like Shannon said, I think institutional access is really key that if Hockey Canada and the NHL really want to shift the culture, they need to reach out to people outside who are critiquing the culture Um, I also think that, you know, as educators who work, who used to work in K to 12, I would love for educators, my colleagues, to not adultify these young boys who are chasing a hockey dream. Um, Like I was saying this morning to Shannon and Tim, one of the secretaries when I worked at uh, high school who we had a player who's now playing professionally, every time he would come in, they would bring in memorabilia to have him sign things. I'm like, he's 16. He's a boy, you know, like, let's not adultify him. So I think educators need to recognize their role in this Um, and yet our research is always ongoing that's the unfortunate beautiful thing about hockey culture is there's always something Um, but for myself I'm really looking forward to this coming year Um, I'm very gifted to have um, at our university a hockey coach who's interested in this as well and so he's been he's given me access to his team so next year I'm going to be following our um, Concordia men's hockey team and having dialogues with them. So, we're going to talk about these things, which is just unheard of. And the coach has opened up that space for me to have with his teammates to say, let's talk about this incident. Let's talk about Kyle Beach. Let's talk about why you got a game misconduct. And let's talk about the response in the fans. You know, like when I go to a hockey game now to watch them those girls are still there holding their signs, you know? And it's like, okay, what are we rewarding on the ice? And so I'm really looking forward to um, that project coming up for myself. Uh, not just for myself, for the team. But <laughs> it's a personal little thing that I think is gonna be cool.
0: Tim, where are we headed?
3: Uh, the problem with going last is that the thoughtfulness that has come before me. But, um, One of the things that I I guess I, I, and not to harbour on this, but it it just really resonates with me is how do we um, start to take up hockey at the grassroots level? And I'm not suggesting as soon as I say that I realise good people are doing lots of good things in minor hockey associations, but one of the things, and I'll be maybe this by way of story. So, um, and my son's team, again, it was a U11, you know, house league give five out of six. So they're not, well, maybe they, won't. maybe they will get to NHL, but it's probably not where they're heading. But one of the things that they used to do, and I applaud the coach for this, they would, they would rotate the captaincy through the team. So every two weeks or every week, they would say, okay, we have a new captain. But one of the things, I guess, to your question is, how might that spot right there open up a conversation of what is it to be a captain? What is it to be a young boy in this context, both on and off the ice, can they hold that space as coaches to say, how ought we carry ourselves? How do we treat teammates? What is it to win a game? What is it to play the game for fun? Why do we keep score if winning doesn't really matter at that? So I guess it's the keeping the questions open that we can see this game for other ways of it being played and understood And these young boys can live among multiplicities. They can say, oh, I can behave this way. They can start to talk to each other. They have a certain agency at a very young age to say, this is how I want to be a boy. This is how I need to talk to my friends. And when I hear and watch young boys interact, as Teresa's alluded to, it's profound what the questions they have about becoming a human being, a thoughtful one and a caring one.
0: You know, I, I love the way you put that, a thoughtful and caring human being. I, I had the, the privilege uh, to learn my role in this game from a, a gentleman who had done it for decades prior. And one of the things he impressed upon me is that we, through our role, which is really high level by that role, I mean in the broadcast booth, but we have an obligation to the game because it to some degree employs us. And and what his obligation may have been starting back in the 1960s is probably different. No, is different than the obligation I may have in the 2020s. But I have, because he impressed that upon me, I've always kept that close to my heart. And I think, I hope that, I mean, our little podcast here, which just passed 3000 downloads, I'm pretty stoked about it, Uh, can play a role we can have and I'm I'm so grateful to each of you for this time and and maybe we can keep our lines of communication open and and check in regularly by next year we might have 10,000 downloads and we'll just keep going but let's keep having these conversations let's keep being uncomfortable from time to time and uh, and and work towards the goal that we all seek here which is the changing of the culture of this game that we love so much Uh, I I can't thank each, each of you enough for doing this today and, and let's make sure we stay in touch and, and keep this up okay
3: yeah thank thanks, you Mike. very think, much yeah Thank. i think conversation's a gift and yes, you provide God. that for many people so um it's our thanks to you as well yes,
1: as academics, maybe five people read our paper. So when you say 3000, like our Conversation Canada piece is at 3000 and we're like, yay, cause you spend, you know, years on a dissertation and five people read it. And then you do one small piece in the Conversation Canada and you're all of a sudden on five Tims, like I said earlier, five shows a day. So yeah, thank you very much for for this platform.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Mike. And thank you for your obligation to improve the game and absolutely keep it in touch. We're we're not giving up because again, we're cautiously optimistic.